0: Hello and welcome to Life with Ed, the podcast. I am Julia Wirth, your host, a registered dietitian in New Haven, Connecticut, and I am so excited to welcome you to our second episode of season two. Uh, This week, I'm joined by my dietitian uh, associates, (laughs) the two dietitians who work in Worthy Wild Nutrition practice with me. It's Natalia Putnam and Rachel Utstein. They both are amazing dietitians. They work with eating disorders as well, um, as well as some other specialties that are different from mine. I think today's conversation will hit home for a lot of people who have had a child or a loved one suffering from an eating disorder or with an eating disorder throughout the COVID pandemic because things are super different since COVID. We talk about all of that. We dive into how many more eating disorders there are now. We dive into how treatment is so much harder to get in some ways and easier in others. We talk about all those changes and hopefully the good we can keep and the bad that we can get rid of as we come out of this pandemic. So I really hope that you enjoy today's episode. And now um, just a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Worth Your Wild Nutrition's Parent Support Program Speaker Series. On February 9th, Rachel Utstein, who you will hear in this podcast, is going to be speaking to parents. Um, It is a $25 event for as many people you want to have sit behind your Zoom screen. Um, Rachel is going to be talking about how to dismantle diet culture in your own home and how to best support your child through eating and and meal plans and all of the fun stuff that comes with eating disorder recovery. If you like what you hear from Rachel in this podcast, I think you'll love getting her support for you and your family at the event. So again, it's February 9th. That's a week from today at 7 p.m. If you're interested in attending, please email me at worth, W-E-R-T-H, your wild Nutrition at gmail.com. Again, the event is $25. It's at 7 p.m. next Wednesday and Wednesday. <laughs> and all are welcome. Hope to see you there. Now back to the episode. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Natalia. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, it's great to have you guys on. Um, and I just love it if you could give my listeners a little bit idea of who you are. They've heard about you maybe a little bit um since i talk about our practice but from yourselves tell us who you are what you what you like to do sure
1: so uh, i'm natalia i actually went to college with julia which is how we met um i was actually born and raised in ukraine so um my approach to food is very much intertwined with culture and health beliefs and um i actually also studied psychology in college so um, I like living in the intersection of all those things when I approach nutrition issues. Awesome.
2: Okay, and my name is Rachel. And I also live in New Haven, Um, but before I started working in this practice, I worked in um, eating disorder treatment at the partial hospitalization and intensive outpatient level of care. Um, So I practice with a health at every size and intuitive eating approach, and I'm super passionate about it and love having conversations about um, like health at every size specifically and diet culture and taking it down um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Awesome. That's funny. You say uh, you're super passionate about it because I feel like so many people in this field just are so excited, which is a a great thing about being in this field. Um, but I recorded another podcast on Friday and I like had to ask the therapist, like we have to stop talking. Like I have to go because like, she was just so excited and that was awesome. Um, Mm -hmm. So today we're going to talk about like how COVID over the last almost two years has really changed eating disorders, um, both in their severity and in like how we treat them and what we're seeing. Um, and I just wanted to start off by reading. There's actually a new publication that came out. I think it's yesterday, but it might've been two days ago, um, in the Lancet psychiatry, uh, specifically about eating disorders. So I'll just read this excerpt. It says, while the pandemic has impaired population mental health globally, it seems to have had particular detrimental effects on people with or at risk of eating disorders. Multiple reports from different countries in Europe, Australia, and North America have shown an increase of the incidence of eating disorder behaviors or diagnoses in the community or deterioration of eating disorders in patient populations, often with more severe symptoms and comorbidities since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. And when you go down a little further, it says that in 2020 alone, and obviously you've had a whole year since then, but in 2020 alone compared to 2019, there was a 15.3% increase in diagnosed eating disorders. And we all know that like, there's so many eating disorders that aren't diagnosed. So I think that's like a good place to start because that really sums up exactly how I feel has happened and what has happened in, in the eating disorder field. I don't know if you guys have thoughts on that. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Oh, absolutely.
2: (laughs) I do too. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that the pandemic has caused eating disorders to become, you know, more like severe, if you will, but then also just the development of more eating disorders. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think just spending so much time, like number one, like at home and especially for, for teenagers or people who are in school, like entire routines shift Mm -hmm. and things feel very out of control. So it makes sense that, you know, there's a rise in eating disorders because, you know, eating disorders give this very false sense of control. And when everything else feels unpredictable, um, Mm -hmm. we turn to controlling things like food and exercise.
0: Yeah, for sure. And like later on in the article, it says, which I think is interesting because this is precisely what I've seen. I've been working an outpatient only eating disorders from a year and a half before the pandemic through the pandemic. And during that time, I've seen just like kids get younger and younger, you know, like I, I used to only see like 15 plus, I feel like I didn't really see an outpatient at least, you know, like 12 year olds, 11 year olds, like that was really rare. I saw them for picky eating, but like no eating disorder component. Exactly but this article says the increase occurred solely in women and girls and was primarily observed in adolescents. So like that 11, Mm -hmm. 12, 13. And that's what I see. Like in our practice, we got so many 12 year olds now and 13 year olds, which is wild.
1: Yeah. Total influx. And I feel like, you know, things that would be considered, you know, disordered eating or like the picky Mm -hmm. eating or, you know, even having some aversions gi sensitivities yeah. to things like has gotten heightened and increased and at least from the inpatient side i also have a hospital job yeah. um we see tremendous increase in admissions and there's really like a struggle with like how to manage these kids outside of the hospital because like many mental health services like there's not that many available resources, like right off the bat, there's wait lists for a lot of places. And um, so it's definitely prominent on both sides, inpatient and outpatient.
0: Yeah, actually, maybe it's good to start like thinking at the inpatient level. So I, as you guys know, like I'm a writer as well. And back in February of 2021, I interviewed a bunch of psychiatrists at Yale who work with you, Natalia, like Mm -hmm. in the hospital. And, um, one of them told me and this is a quote from her we are seeing children coming into the hospital much sicker in terms of mental health instead of seeing a child speaking about suicidal ideations we are seeing kids after a suicide attempt my impression is the level of acuity is much higher when they are coming in than before the pandemic and then in relation to that she's also saying that for eating disorders specifically they used to see like one admin a month, maybe. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I have five or four kids on the floor right now, like today. Um, and that's kids, you know, that's like under 18. And that's, yes. that's so, so different from before the pandemic.
1: It's mm-hmm. striking. And I think a lot of inpatient and outpatient dietitians that, you know, either are affiliated with the hospital or were kind of within, you know, physician clinics. Um, don't know what to do with these kids because they're often referred to like GI clinics and, um, you know, they really need a higher level of care, but they're referred to these GI physicians first because that's, you know, a little bit easier to get into. Uh, and then, or? yeah, sorry. Yeah, and it's just, it's hard because, at least from a dietitian's perspective, a lot of these dietitians feel like, I can't do this child justice because we just don't have the ability or resources or really training to manage what we're being told is a GI issue but really is disordered
0: eating. Yeah. And then uh, stepping so- down like is to where you were Rachel. Right. So it's like an in, inpatient it is overwhelmed so many more kids than usual and then that's filtering down to like where you were working in residential and php programs so Mm -hmm. what were you seeing like beginning of pandemic and then throughout you know the year you were still there
2: yeah and i think that like similarly to being like similarly to what was happening in the hospital it was we were seeing you know like a very increased number of people needing treatment and a very increased severity, which oftentimes kind of caused this challenging situation in terms of space for, you know, people and all the different levels of care. So maybe if somebody needed to really needed inpatient monitoring, they might have, there might not be available spaces for them. So, you know, they might have to be in a level of care that's not quite appropriate for them. Mm -hmm. And then that really halts ability to recover because we know that, you know, if somebody needs a lot of support and they're not getting a lot of support um, due to, you know, availability of treatment, then the eating disorder, unfortunately, gets stronger and stronger and stronger. So we see people struggling for longer periods of time and in a more severe way.
0: Um, So, yeah. I think also, as you just said, right, like the kids are not appropriate maybe for the care that they're in. So then it like trickles down in terms of like, the girl or the boy who like needed more care can't get in, right? And so like their eating disorder, like they were an outpatient, maybe they just needed IOP so that they had like mealtime support or something or PHP, but then they're not admitted because they're full and then there's like more severe kids and then they end up becoming one of those more severe kids because they're stuck at home without that. So it's like, yeah, there's too many kids who need help and then it makes the people who didn't quite need help yet worse so then there's more kids and it's just like this cascade of effects going on Mm -hmm. and i haven't really seen it slow down have you guys felt like it's slowed down like two years in Mm, i don't think so yeah just we
1: just had an inpatient meeting about this like talking specifically about like where do we send these kids if we feel you know they're coming in for a physician visit and we're being asked to see them, but they really need to be referred out. Um, or they need, you know, more psych care involvement and that just like hasn't happened yet. Um, so I feel like the backup just like keeps
0: rolling over. Yeah. And there's never going to be like a pause, you know, like I always think about like when you're in school, there's like the nine months of the school year then there's summer break and you can kind of like reset everything. You're like, okay, well, I never put my clothes away like during the school year, but like, we'll have summer and like, I'll put my clothes away or fresh, whatever. Fresh start. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fresh start. But like that doesn't exist, you know, like the eating disorders like keep developing and mm-hmm. they keep getting admitted or getting worse and not getting care. Or they can't find a therapist or they're on a waiting list for a psychiatrist for like five months or whatever. And like, there's no, there's no pause. So I have no idea like when it gets better. And that's like really, really depressing to all the, anyone listening for sure.
1: Yeah. I think the other component too, as we mentioned, like the kids are younger and younger. And so if we had, you know, older patients, like, you know, teenage and above, like there's at least more like self-awareness and a little bit more like intrinsic motivation that like, yes, even if they get the occasional, you know, session or care, like there's some degree of like responsibility that they can, take things into their own hands and, you know, set goals for themselves and really like try their hardest to achieve those goals independently. Like these younger kids, like that ability is just like lacking for obvious reasons. And it's that much harder to keep up with. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. That's a really good point. Like how you, how you care for an 11 year old is like totally different than a 15, 16 year old. And I don't think that And Rachel, you know, correct me if I'm wrong in the PHP and residential programs, but I don't think that they're set up for those little kids the same way because they're so used to those older kids or teens.
2: Yeah, no, that's a great point. And, you know, I think a lot of treatment programs will, you know, they will provide treatment to, you know, really young adolescents, but you're right. Like, you know, maybe some of the group content or, you know, like just the environment of being a really young teen around a 15 or 16 year old, it's a completely different thing. Um, So that's a great point. So
0: I want to step back and talk about like, what are some ways that we've all noticed that care has just changed? So we've set, you know, the groundwork for, obviously there's way more people who need care and they're more severe, but also we three are all working in a virtual practice, which didn't really exist before the pandemic. So like, besides that, most of your outpatient appointments are no longer in person. What else has been different that you guys have noticed?
2: yeah i I think you know, of course, the things we've already talked about um like you know the increase in development of eating disorders and the severity of eating disorders. but I think too that um like being like, having treatment be virtual. And, you know, if we're talking higher levels of care virtual, because that's also happened. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I think that's, that's, and that's a huge change. And I think that there's pros and cons. Um, I think a pro is that, you know, um, more access to treatment because sometimes people don't have transportation or it's too far away, but a huge con is, you know, the relationship building, which is a huge part of recovery. And from the meal support aspect, um, having therapeutic meals over a virtual platform is a huge change and can be really challenging for a lot of people because, um, you know, there's less supervision. Um, Mm -hmm. like
0: you're going to residential or PHP because you need that in-person support, but, Mm -hmm. but now you're not in person. And I've had patients tell me like, oh, you know, I show them my plate and then I just throw it in the trash can, like next to me. And like, you're so helpless as a virtual dietitian or a therapist. You're just like, oh, don't. Okay. All right. Don't do that. You know, like, what are Mm -hmm. you supposed to do?
2: Yeah, there's so much more accountability placed on the specific person struggling and then their family as well. Um, and I think a pro of the virtual platform is that, you know, we also get more of like a glimpse into the home. So we yeah, can see really. kind of like the routine around meals and, and all that stuff and provide more hands-on support. But at the same time, like way more accountability gets placed on family and the specific person struggling. And we we know that if someone's very sick with an eating disorder. Um,
0: Um, you know, it's very hard to keep yourself accountable. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. And Natalia, like even in the hospital, you were seeing people virtually, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Especially earlier on, um, a lot of our clinics got converted to virtual sessions. um, And I think, one downside to that was that some visits were even kind of bundled together. So like physician would be seeing a patient and the dietitian would be present at that visit but not necessarily like have their own time and space with the patient individually. Mm-hmm. And I think it really hinders kind of like the monitoring and evaluation portion of what we do you know, our practice is really shifting more towards like nutrition focused physical exam and just kind of like,
0: yeah, that was like a big thing, like touch your patient, but now they're not there.
1: (laughs) They're not physically there. I mean, it's, it's still definitely, you know, really, really useful. And at least, you know, with seeing a person face to face, you can even get more like subtle things like facial expressions, you know, You can kind of read more body language um you can't tell much from just your shoulders up yeah when I can't you're, tell when I you're tell them, well that's that's the thing it's <laughs> right? you know that changes a lot about what my nutritional needs are right so let alone some of these kids that you know would be great to see them at their baseline when i'm just meeting them and then like seeing how they progress both like physically and emotionally um, as we're meeting Um, Mm -hmm. and then you know technical difficulties too like if there's a bad connection that can be a barrier but um but the bright side is that I think a lot of people that you know wouldn't have access due to work schedules or Mm -hmm. you know other barriers um you know having access virtually is great for them um so that is definitely a pro
0: yeah so maybe we can each say like in terms of the actual, like nutrition therapy you provide, what do you think is like one or two things that are di- different or better? And maybe one or two things that are worse when you're virtual. I can start if that makes it easier. Um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So the first thing is that I'm thinking back, like I used to have an office in New Haven and I saw patients in person twice a week and like I'm a very fidgety person. So as, as you guys know, like I don't sit still well. So as a provider, like I was always like kind of moving my legs and like moving around in my chair. And I feel like that was actually really distracting to my patient. Um, because like I would be moving or like picking up a pen or like, just like being fidgety and, I can do that virtually and they have no idea. Like, I'm like constantly, I got like things under my desk, like moving my feet around, like, and they have no idea. So, that's like a positive that I'm no longer like distracting them by my mere presence. Um, but (laughs) it's just sad, but I think it's true. And then, um, one sort of negative is I'm also very like, to the point, I don't have like lengthy conversations if it's not necessary. But when you're in person, um, you have a set time and like a lot of my patients were like dropped off, right? So it's like, well, they can't hang up the phone, right? So it's like, we're going to talk for the full, you know, 45, 50 minutes. And now I often stop talking at like 35, 40 minutes, right? Like a little bit less time Um, and, That's just kind of my attention span and sort of maybe their attention span on the virtual platform. But in person, you can have more of those just like, oh, I like your sweater. Like, how are you doing? Right. And so like those sorts of longer conversations are lost. So that's definitely a negative for me of the of the virtual because I'm so like, what's going on? What are you doing? (laughs) Like, here we go. Um, And definitely don't spend as much time. So I don't know what your thoughts are.
2: Yeah, I think, um, I think I would say a big positive of like virtual, the virtual platform is just kind of like, um, like, feeling more comfortable in like your space or just even in coming to the session in the first place. yeah. Because I think America's couch, right? Yeah. And I think it can go both ways, right? Like, you know, there's a sense of nerves that happen when, you know, you're going to see a dietitian for the first time. And then if you're going to meet a client for the first time, and I think it eliminates, like it's eliminates some of that barrier of, you know, putting yourself in that very vulnerable situation in person, it's a little bit easier over the screen. And I think, you know, I don't think everyone, agrees with that. Cause I know sometimes, you know, I've had clients who really don't prefer a virtual platform, but I think for me personally, I think that that is a positive and I think it maybe eliminates some of the barriers to seeking treatment. Um, yeah.
0: especially if they have parents who work, right. Like yeah, I see kids so much, like when their parents aren't home, which isn't always great, but at least like they're seeing me. Right. And they wouldn't have even made time for a nutrition appointment otherwise. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I think the negative is that um, I kind of touched on it a little bit, but I think sometimes like depending on the personality of, of the person, it can be challenging to build a, a really strong therapeutic relationship. And I would even say for specifically treatment, um, like maybe like a, a partial hospitalization, um, a really big part of treatment is that connection that you make with like your peers. And I think that's a really big negative to like a virtual platform is it's a lot harder to make that connection. It's not impossible at all, but I think for some people, it feels a lot harder. It's so. easier
0: to like hide, right? Like when you're exactly. on the screen or just like one other square, especially in a, in a group session. Yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I agree with everything you guys have been saying and You know, for me, it feels like it really comes down to the patient because Mm -hmm. a lot of these pros can be cons for some of our patients and vice versa. It just really depends on, you know, what their needs are and their comfort level. So some of the patients that, you know, you might be able to get them to engage more in person because there is no like, escape or looking off from the screen or having you know the parent there in the whole session and Mm -hmm. like virtually you know you miss out on that because of of the virtual setting but for other people they feel far more comfortable and will divulge a lot more than if you were looking them dead in the eye so um it's
0: it's definitely a double-edged sword Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. and i also think like in terms of making more appointments available, right? Like yes, yes. we offer so many more appointments in this practice because we don't have to rent an office, right? Like Natalia, you see people at like nighttime. <laughs> like, I do. <laughs> 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 and like, that's wonderful for them that they can see someone at that time when we would never have an office open, you know? Right, um, yeah. Especially when the problem is, as we were saying at the beginning, like that there isn't enough care. Um, Like, I think we're some of the only dietitians in our region that take insurance so that there's just so many clients who don't have another option, right? Mm. Um, That is
2: a great point. I think that the just like abundance of availability is much different because, you know, you're
0: working from home. (laughs) Yeah. I don't have to like drive anywhere, which like is time, right? Like that's an entire Mm -hmm. appointment where I would be like driving somewhere and driving home or Yeah. I used to walk to my office, but like either way, Mm -hmm. um, miss those days.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I can totally vouch for the, uh, commute time taking a chunk out of the
0: day. Yeah. Yeah. You Mm -hmm. still commute and it's a long commute.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, Mm -hmm. crazy. So in my first podcast of this series, I talked about, um, like what are some things that I really want parents to know? Because you guys know, like I've been running this parent group for a year and I just feel like they're the missing key for so many patients, um, recovery, you know, like you're, especially with younger patients, right? Like your 12 year old patient can see you and be like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna eat that snack. And then like, they tell their therapist, like, you know, all their feelings and they feel like they're getting better, whatever it is. But then like their parent at home is not, you know, buying the snack or they're not like aware of any of these issues or cognizant of their language. And they're not involved in treatment, especially Mm -hmm. maybe in a virtual world where the patient can just like, it's their email, like they show up, you know, all of those things. So what are some of the top things that you guys like over and over again, think to yourselves, like, I wish this parent knew that or like, would would do this or, or whatever this.
2: Yeah, and I, I have a couple of things that I think I I always want parents to know. And like the first one is that like full recovery is possible. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that's just like across the board, I think something that can feel really, really scary as a parent of somebody who has an eating disorder. Um, and I think I, I, I always want parents to know it's normal for everything to feel scary in the beginning, but like, you know, your treatment team is there to support you and create a full treatment team, including, you know, a dietitian, a therapist, a doctor and a psychiatrist so that you have all of that support. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then the other, the other thing is that I think, early intervention and early treatment is so important. So like, you know, the longer we go without getting treatment, the harder things can get. Um, if eating disorder thoughts and behaviors are allowed to exist, they only get louder. Um, and I think sometimes it's hard to identify when, you know, an eating disorder is developing. So, you know, that's kind of on you know, a a personal, you know, mission of mine of just like education, like how do we educate people more about the signs of a developing eating disorder, Um, parents, pediatricians, all of that type of stuff. So everyone can spot it. And so that we can get treatment
0: sooner. Great. Like how Um, many patients do you have, or, you know, patients where you talk to the parents, I guess, where the parents are like, oh yeah, like two years ago, they said they were going to be a vegetarian. And I'm like, why didn't you see a dietitian then, (laughs) right? Like you're not a vegetarian. So you just relinquished the reins of this kid's nutrition to them and they're five or like whatever, you know, (laughs) like I had one of those where like they became a, a vegetarian at five and that's wild. So, um, I don't know. I think that you're totally right with wanting parents to not wait till there's a crisis, right? Exactly. You don't need to wait till they're inpatient because their heart rate is 35, like to um, take it seriously, you know?
2: Yeah. And I think this is, um, a huge issue of diet culture of this idea that like, you know, per, per, pursuing, and I'm putting quotations health is what we need to be doing because like, if there's a drastic change or even like a, a change that you're questioning about your child's eating or exercise, like, you mm-hmm. know, that matters. And like, you know, it's that type of be those types of behaviors can lead to the development of an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. So,
0: and yeah. not feeling like I don't know. I just, I do all the intro calls, right? So I talk to these parents who are like, oh, you know, this is what's going on with my kid. And the pediatrician said, I should reach out to you, but I don't really know, like, do they need to see a dietitian? Like they don't Mm -hmm. need to be talking about their food. They're fine. They just, you know, run a hundred miles a week or something. And like, you know, they always say something that's to me, such a red flag. Yeah. Um, Whether it's that the kid's over-exercising or that the kid's just like underweight or that they just, you know, they don't eat breakfast or whatever. And I'm like, no, no, please. Like we need to see them now. Like not, not later.
2: Yes. Yes. And then the last thing that I think is important for parents is that, um, things often get harder before they get easier in recovery. And specifically on the dietary nutrition front, um, Mm -hmm. it's really, really hard to talk to a dietitian about your eating disorder. And it's really, really hard to follow the goals that your dietitian might recommend for you. And it can feel like things are really hard or it can feel like maybe this dietary treatment isn't working. And those are actually the signs that like it is working because we're challenging the eating disorder. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, understanding that that is such a normal thing that happens in recovery is that it's hard. And mm-hmm. it's not always going to stay that hard, but it, it often gets harder before it gets easier. Um, and, and feeling stressed and angry in response to, you know, your child feeling angry a little bit at the dietitian sometimes is a really normal thing.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. So what about you, Natalia? What do you think parents should know? A hundred percent. To
1: piggyback off of that, the one thing I feel I hear myself repeating constantly is that, you know, the treatment course is never linear. And when I say that to both clients and, like, parents, um, what that means is we often see as we challenge ourselves with one aspect of what, you know, we're dealing with, things can morph and and, and change into other disordered patterns, right? So, like, if we were avoiding, you know, protein foods for whatever reason because of texture and smell and blah, 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 and we challenge ourselves on that we get a little bit better at that. And then all of a sudden something else becomes aversive, or Mm -hmm. we we start to avoid something else. Like that is completely normal. And it doesn't mean that you're failing. And it doesn't mean that you're back to square one with your eating disorder. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of parents feel frustration because they'll see progress and they'll see some degree of recovery and they have a sense of relief. Like, okay, things are going to be okay. Like I can just take a step back
0: and then they see being a dietitian that's what I see all the
1: time essentially (laughs) or less frequently exactly yeah and then things start to get worse and then all of a sudden it's like well we were doing so great like what why is this happening like Mm -hmm. you know why aren't these recommendations working anymore Mm
2: -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. and so to, to my second point um we just we can't take those sorts of things personally. And I think a lot of parents can't help, yeah. but feel like they are solely responsible and um, try to find the, the easiest solutions, the quickest solutions to these problems. Um, and there's, I think, a really complex relationship of like guilt and maybe they have their own health goals that can be triggers for, for their children that they don't recognize. It's like this whole cluster of like emotions and frustration and a closed loop essentially um so for one the path is not linear and for two don't take things personally um and the third point I always make is that it's rarely about the food almost never actually um and when people hear that from me again clients and parents are like they're like the dietitian so why like having- why are we why are we talking to you exactly like that's your whole job
0: um, yeah, You're like the but, food person
1: yeah yeah but when they bring up you know like we've noticed like regression or you know like less eating more avoidance and things like that um and this has come up in, in group sessions where it's like me and the therapist and the family um But there's other approaches than, you know, you need to be eating more and kind of like that, you know, hovering, like watching them eat every bite, but kind of digging a little bit deeper and seeing like, is there a new stressor in their life? Like, is there something else going on that might be making these symptoms worse?
2: Um,
1: And then once we get to the root of that, like the food part will also follow, you know, we can work
0: on that next. Um, So those are my big three. Yeah, I think it's so interesting you said that don't take things personally because I see that come up all the time in like very different ways that always seem to you know get the parents to be like ah we're not going to take take the dietitian seriously anymore, right? So it's like you know I'm a big advocate for family meals because you see people just do better when they're eating with their parents and their other mm-hmm. siblings and food is not like chaos or like a fight for yourself or whatever um So I say that a lot. and parents are like, well, you know, we're just busy, we don't do Doesn't that work like,
1: for us. yeah, yeah
0: that, that's not what our family does and it's like, okay, that's fine. you know we can work with that. but I'm telling you like you will probably have better success if you, Make the time to eat with your kid, mm. Um, but that that comment always gets parents like ah, I don't. riled up. No, hundred yeah. percent.
1: And I always try to find examples of like, okay, if you if it's not with the immediate family, you know, like your child reports that like they feel most comfortable eating when they're with their friends, and mm-hmm. you know. Eating in that kind of a context with people that they trust, that they know, you know, support them and love them. So like, while it might not be possible a hundred percent of the time, like that could be a goal you guys set together, you know. And that's where that like taking it personally thing like really is important because it's not about you and how you were raised or or what your own health beliefs are as a parent, but like what your child really needs to thrive and kind of
0: recover on their path. So. Another example, I think we've all experienced this, is like your kid shows up to treat their their session, right? Their dietitian session, and the parent is sitting like right next to them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the parent talks for the kid, right? Mm-hmm. And I love when parents come to session, but um Me too. To like leave for a little bit so <laughs> so that the kid can like say what's going on just for them, because there's a whole other relationship, right? Like when the parents there, the kid is like trying to protect or whatever, Mm -hmm. or they're just not able to speak. So like, I have one patient who just, her mom would show up to, to the session and not her sometimes. And I'd be like, "I, I can't talk to you, you know, like I need to talk to your daughter. And she'd be like, well, why can't you just tell me what she needs to eat? And I think it goes back to what you said to Talia, like, it's not just about the food, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's about what your daughter is thinking and feeling and doing around food. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you guys have thoughts or stories on that, but that's a huge thing that I don't know. I have so many patients right now that like their parent is the one who talks.
2: Yeah. And I, I think that it's, it's a really hard thing because, you know, the family is, like when you have a teenager that has an eating disorder, it affects the whole family and it can feel like this very, like it is a very, very hard thing. And it can feel so vulnerable to kind of like open up your family to, you know, a provider for support. Yeah. Like a random floating
0: head on the screen. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So like, I, you know, I, I think send, like, I always kind of think about, you know, like reminding parents to give themselves so much compassion, the same way I would remind a patient that I was working with for like all of this, like hard work of like really unlearning, all of these things that maybe like you thought were helping, but actually aren't and it's not because you did something wrong it's because maybe like we just don't understand or we need more education or whatever right. it is so I think that I like approaching it like what you said Natalia of not taking it personally and like if you're feeling like this these things are your fault or you're you feel so bad like give yourself compassion like you didn't know and now you know
0: and sure, I think that's our first r- point that I said <laughs> in my last podcast was get your own therapist
2: <laughs> like, yeah
0: get your own help
2: yeah Uh, yeah yeah
0: that's that was a good one I hadn't thought of so thanks for bringing (laughs) that up um but yeah okay so as we wrap up like thinking about you know treatment in the hopefully ends of the COVID era like this this last year I'm hoping um yeah Natalia's shaking her head like I don't know (laughs) Fingers (laughs) Fingers <laughs> <Thank laughs> crossed. <No>, uh, <laughs> like, what do you see going forward for eating disorder treatment? You know, what should stick around from this time, and what what should we try to get back to from before? Mm,
1: that's a great question. Um, I think from this time, I think it's really important to remember that people are often isolated even be, like before a pandemic. Yeah. Um, and now it's just that much harder to make connections and, you know, go out to eat places and go out to be social. And like, um, there's just a whole nother level of isolation and anxiety and stress. Um, and so I think moving forward, like even if pandemic... W- like, living gets better and a little bit more open, um, I think people's isolation continues for Mm -hmm. for a lot of circumstances. Um, And that's something that we as providers need to be sensitive about. Um, And as far as, like, going back to how things were, like, I think having more of a balance between Virtual and like in-person sessions is going to be really, really important because again, for some of our clients, it's like essential to have that in-person interaction and read each other and build trust. And for other patients, you know, the opposite works best. But um, just giving the option to those that need it, I think, will be really helpful.
0: Yeah. I hope that, I mean, obviously, I hope because we're still all virtual, but I hope that like virtual sessions will continue. Yeah. Um, since Me that too. I think has just like allowed so many poor people who would never have made the effort to see a dietitian or a therapist um, see them regularly. But I also hope that what sticks around is like the more frequent pediatrician visits. Like, I don't think either of you were outpatient prior to COVID, but. Um, before it was like, I would weigh patients and sometimes, you know, do vital checks, like at the dietitian visit. So the pediatrician would be like, oh, well, like you only need to see me once a month because you're getting weighed at, you know, uh, you know, Julia's appointment. But you know, I didn't do their heart rate or blood pressure nearly as effectively as a doctor. And they are like, it's just a different viewpoint instead of eyes. So I think like the increased involvement of the pediatricians um, during COVID has been a great change um, that I hope will continue.
2: Yeah, that's, I, that's such a great point. I think mm. that I completely agree. Yeah. Um, and I think something that, and I agree with what both of you said, I, I think having like continuing telehealth, I I see as kind of like a new normal, if you will. And like, you know, um, I think it's just never, a great option.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> and I, I think that that also too, something that um, is a really like something that I enjoy about treatment. And, and specifically when I did work in higher levels of care is just sharing meals with people just in person. Um, because I think that there's such a power of, you know, having number one, like a, a, a kind of more quote unquote normal relationship with food being like modeled in a situation like that. So, um, that, but then also just getting to enjoy food together, um, And, you know, I think I hope that that's something that can be like integrated back into treatment of, you know, going in, getting ice cream or going out to lunch or something like that so that, you know, we can have those positive food experiences because I think they
0: are something that I've always really enjoyed about being an eating disorder dietitian. That's a good point. Like I used to like go out to ice cream or something with my patients, you know, I was like like, like, a challenge at the end of their treatment, which means I ate a lot of ice cream, which is great. (laughs) And, and like, it was just, you know, a fun experience for them too. And that doesn't happen anymore. And Mm -hmm. even like in PHP and IOPs and stuff, like having mealtime, I think again, would be, (laughs) really, really good. So important. Yes. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and we always bring up to our patients, you know, like what is the social cost of eating disorder? "Uh,
0: Nothing right now. It's
1: like in the setting of COVID, it's like, everything is, (laughs) is a social cost. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Specifically as it relates to food, uh, it would make things a lot easier if we could demonstrate it. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you guys so much. This was really great. Um, I do need to ask um, what your favorite foods are before we leave. Ah.
2: <laughs> Always a good question. It's so impossible to choose one. So I'm so happy you said favorite foods. Yeah, um, I skipped <laughs> that up by
0: accident. that's okay. You get it. What are your favorite foods?
2: Um, okay, so I think my favorite foods are definitely um pizza is definitely up
0: well, there even so like life is really good with that pizza
2: <laughs> yeah and I would say I would say bagels pizza and bagels um Ooh, and then this is not a food here. but it's a drink but I love like coffee drinks I love iced coffee drinks um
0: yeah awesome and you it.
2: sign me
1: up I mean my husband says I don't have taste buds because I like everything and I no, mean you have pretty much everything I agree. <laughs> I agree. means I'm more evolved, but (laughs) no, um, definitely Ukrainian food because that's where I'm Mm -hmm. from, um, and sushi and chocolate. Like
0: those are my top three problems. Oh, any particular type of sushi roll? Um,
1: I don't know. The crazier, the better. I feel like I'm I'm a saucy person. So I love all the ones with like the eel sauce, you know, the like spicy mayo,
0: so yeah. you're going to get sushi for the first meal post, baby?
1: <laughs> Probably. I've had a couple of like the, the vegetable options, so.
0: Oh, okay. Good. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah Food-born food illness be damned.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I hear you. Well, this was great. Thank you guys so much. Um, and hopefully we can do this again.
1: Thank Not you. Good.
0: Thank you.